The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Did you know that rest and sleep are considered occupations? The occupational therapy practice framework is a document that we use in occupational therapy to to guide the process of what we do in OT. And it also explains what occupations are and what they mean. And sleep preparation is a thing in the OTPF. And it talks about routines, bedtime routines, to prepare yourself, to prepare the body, to prepare the mind, that it's time to wind it down and get ready to fall asleep. They talk about how routines that prepare the self for a comfortable rest are important. And then they have some examples, grooming, getting your clothes out for the next day, reading and listening to music, saying goodnight to others and engaging in meditation or prayers before bed, determining the time of day and length of time that somebody desires to sleep and then how much time somebody needs to be awake. So being mindful of that and planning for that and establishing healthy sleep patterns. When you start with these habits, you can build them into a routine and then your body just kind of gets used to looking for that. In our previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, titled Dr. Jones, Tex-Mex, and Synaptic Connections, Pete and I reviewed our conversation with Dr. Jones. We talked about a variety of topics, including how repetition rules in learning, getting beyond feelings of intimidation, and putting people on different levels based on education, and setting aside the ego so that we can improve communication and care. We sorted through compensation and recovery and reviewed Dr. Jones' research perspectives. We talked about moving into gray areas, thinking, and clinical reasoning. We also discussed what neuroplasticity looks like in action in real time, and monkeys in research during COVID, travel, and more questions to ask Dr. Jones.
have a Facebook question. I made it hidden. That's why. That was an exclusive group we had there. <laughs> it was very exclusive. Yeah. So now we have three members. So hope maybe we'll get some more. I don't think we need more than three. I think three. You don't think so. That's it. Very exclusive. Very very exclusive. Mm-hmm. Two is a little ridiculous, but three is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're managing it for now. Yes, we are. <laughs> We're doing a good job managing it. <laughs> so are you sort of kind of ready? I suppose. Probably ready as we'll ever be. Okay. So hey, Dad Batted Stella, how you doing? I'm great, Pete Levine. How are you? What's new with you? Anything interesting? Mm, not really anything worth talking about. Mm. What about oh. you? Let's see. On my end, uh, my son is about to go away to college and I'm completely bummed about that oh yeah yeah far is he going far no uh, a couple hours and uh and he has a car Mm -hmm. so um but still it's just so weird i remember him as a little boy and now he's six three and 185 pounds and ready to tear up the soccer field but Mm -hmm. yeah it's tough yeah Yeah, it is tough that transition to empty nesters Mm mm-hmm I wonder though, one of the big points I make a lot is that the biggest driver of neuroplastic change that you could possibly have is having and raising children because there's so many things that you have to learn and you care so much and it's so meaningful and meaningful drives brain changes. I wonder if it reverses once they get out of the house. I, maybe I should ask you. Maybe I'll just like drain all that stuff out my head and uh, I'll just like, maybe that's part of the decline of aging is no. I- I don't think so. I, your relationship with them changes. And I like my relationship with my kids as adults. We have these really cool conversations that we couldn't have before. So that's kind of fun. We do fun things together. You know, they, they still do stuff that makes you worry and wonder a little bit. It's, it's really, you know, there's just a little more quietness at home. So that thing of um, getting comfortable with yourself and your spouse, all that good stuff. Maybe that's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well, i don't know covid really helped me yeah yeah oh yeah. wow well yeah. this is not what we're supposed to be talking about today so what is today's topic can you remind me today's topic is all about sleep and i'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say because i have a feeling you know some information about how, how the brain heals or what happens to the brain following a stroke or a brain injury do you know anything about what makes people so sleepy following the injury? I'm hoping to learn something about that. Yeah, well, we'll see. What I do know is how detrimental not sleeping well is to all of us. And I do have some information about that. I mean, it, it basically drives the chemicals that drive Alzheimer's and dementia. So this is uh, an episode maybe not just for people with brain injury, although we'll focus on that, of course, mm-hmm. but also for all of us who don't want either just really bad sleep hygiene or don't want to get Alzheimer's because that's really what you're headed towards. This amyloid beta and it builds up and and it just gunks up the brain and the brain shrinks from it. So yeah, I think we should have pretty cool stuff to talk about. Yes. So I want to mention the podcast that Lynette and Doro shared with us. It's the Andrew Huberman podcast where he interviewed Dr. Matt Walker. Am I, is that correct? Yeah, I think it's Matthew, Matt, I think Matthew Walker. Yeah. Well, I might be on a Matt name basis with him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> why not? He deserves yeah, why not? a card. Exactly. 
when he, he gets a card, he, he's he our friend. Okay. Okay. Um, so while I did not finish listening to that uh, podcast interview, it's very long and it's very much in depth. The one takeaway that I have from it so far is there's, there's so much on the cellular level and the chemical level that occurs in the brain and in the body that drives health. And I think sometimes we don't think about that. And I wanted to just bring that to our attention because a lot of times when you're talking to people, they they might start a new protocol or they might start doing something, but they don't feel different within a few weeks. So they they stop. But when changes are occurring on the inside and levels that we can't see, sometimes the way that you feel, the improvement occurs much later. So are you talking about like if we make suggestions for sleep hygiene, either for anybody listening to it, whether it's a student that's stressed out and can't sleep, or it's a person with brain injury that's having the same problem, that if they give the suggestions we provide today, maybe uh, give it enough time to sink into your sink into you at a cellular level almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think that when changes are occurring at the cellular level, we don't always we don't know how long the change takes, and it's easy to give up. And I'm just thinking that maybe we all need to engage in healthy habits, whatever they are, and give our bodies a chance to catch up to the change that we're looking for. Yeah, well, that, that's a lot of. Work. Work if it's going to change a lot of cells. Um, guess how many cells we have in our body? Oh, I can't make a guess like that. I probably don't know that many numbers. <laughs> 724 trillion cells. You know how I know that number? I just looked it up. I was going to say, you used your friend Google. Uncle Google. Uncle yeah. Google. <laughs> Who knows if he's right? This is according to National Geographic, which is the first hit. So yeah. So if you're going to give sleep hygiene or whatever you want to call it, good sleep habits, a chance, give them a chance and, um, and do it and be structured about it and give it some time. Yes. Okay, kids. That's all we had to say. All right. Well, thanks for, (laughs) thanks for listening. And don't forget to join our Facebook group. We're done here. Our work here is done. Okay. So sleep disorders for people with traumatic brain injury or acquired brain injury, including stroke, are three times more common than in the general population. And nearly 60% of people with uh, acquired brain injury experience long-term difficulties with sleep. Women are more likely to be affected than men because they don't have enough problems. They don't have enough disadvantages. And (laughs) sleep problems are more likely to to develop as they age. So as a person with acquired brain injury ages, it's compounded. Because aging also affects sleep detrimentally. Have you found your sleep affected as you get older? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And there are certain stages of sleep that are particularly affected as you age. And then that leads to an acceleration of brain deterioration. So especially for older folks, it's really important. Do you ever take melatonin? No. Most of the time, I don't have trouble sleeping. Good for you. Look at you. That's lucky. I know, right? I feel very lucky that way. A lot of things make me sleepy, but there was a time in my life when my kids were teenagers that sleep was actually more challenging than when they were younger. And I I don't know why that is. It's not like there was anything really, there was no reason for it. I just couldn't sleep. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know what fixed it though. Maybe it was their partying that was keeping you up. Maybe it was the fact that you were partying with your kids. That was the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. That's something I would do. I remember chasing my son around the backyard when he had beers in his hand and he wasn't old enough to be drinking them. Huh. (laughs) See, I don't know. So first of all, alcohol hurts your sleep and puts you 
to sleep, but it's a form of sedation and sedation is not sleep. Sleep is a very active thing. Sedation actually brings down the activity the brain has to do to keep you healthy. So if you had chased him around, the exercise, so as long as it's not too close to your bedtime, would actually help you sleep. <laughs> but if you caught him and you got the beer and then you drank it, then uh, you could be doing yourself a great disservice. Meanwhile, your kid's drinking beer and then the police come and they find you. It's like, actually, yeah, I think your children can drink. You know what? This is getting crazy. Yeah. We better not talk about that part. Um, Yeah. yeah, So alcohol and sleep. A lot of people think that alcohol helps you sleep, but it's not good for you. It's not good for your sleep cycle, correct? Yeah, absolutely correct. And it doesn't allow you to go into the deepest sleep and into the sleep. I think it's stage two, and I'm going to go through all these, but the one uh, that allows you to get rid of the amyloid beta and all the stuff, all the crap that builds up during the day, it's taken out, out your cerebral spinal fluid when you're sleeping. And when you drink alcohol, and it's not just alcohol, it's sleeping pills, it's anything that's a downer. It doesn't give the brain the chance to do the heavy lifting that it needs to do. It's very, very crazy active when you're sleeping. So if you you put alcohol in it, you may get to sleep quicker, but it's going to be a very uh, stage one kind of sleep where you're half asleep, half awake, and then you'll go into sedation and that will wake you up in the middle of the night. Now you're stuck awake and plus you were drinking, so you don't feel good and it's hard to get back to sleep. So yeah, don't don't do that. I'm sure they're all going to listen. Yes. Well, the good ones are. The rest can burn in Hades. <laughs> We're not responsible for what you do. We're just offering suggestions. And look, I'm not going to tell you that I'm a great sleeper. I sleep pretty well, actually, but I do a lot of things wrong. I go to bed at weird hours. I eat right before I go to bed. You're not supposed to do that, especially high glycemic things. It spikes blood sugar. And then you have the same sort of sedation problem. I make a lot of mistakes, but boy, can I nap. I can nap like a mug. I'm like a super napper. That's awesome. So anyway, back to our, our friends with acquired brain injury. Um, some of the sleep disorders include insomnia, duh, um, and it can worsen other problems resulting from the brain injury if they're insomniacs. Mm-hmm. So other things that come from the brain injury, including behavioral problems. Mm. Well, I think from all the research that I read, people in general who are sleep deprived, we have less tolerance for certain things. And we, anyone can actually have a shorter fuse, not be as quick with problem solving or clear headed. So it's not just people with TBIs. And I, I just don't want someone with a brain injury listening to think that we're picking on them because we're not. But if they if somebody has a brain injury and they find that they're struggling to communicate with others or to get along with others, they might want to consider looking at their sleep patterns. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. You know, this is a show about brain injury, yeah. but all of these are just as applicable to somebody who hasn't had a brain injury but has sleep problems. So hopefully everybody can be drawn into this. And you can imagine how if you're going through a stressful time in your life, if you haven't had a brain injury, but you have insomnia, how that's going to drive you nuts anyway, and in much of the same ways. So you'll act out, you'll be angry or short fused or sad or depressed or whatever manifestation has as you go through your your waking hours. So some of the other things, uh, I'll go on with some of the other things that um, happen. So they can have insomnia, they can have excessive daytime sleepiness, extreme drowsiness. It can turn into narcolepsy. So we have these predictable sleep phases, but sometimes they don't click in right with people with uh, brain injury because the brain injury itself screws up the patterns. So now there's delayed sleep phase syndrome. 
So one of the things that I learned in the research that I did is that despite estimates of greater than 50% prevalence of sleep disorders among people who've had a stroke, very few of those are offered formal sleep testing. And a lot of people don't even mention it to their providers. So between people not mentioning this problem to their providers and then lack of awareness on the end of providers, a lot of sleep disturbances go undiagnosed in people who've had a stroke. So it seems to me that people are struggling with sleep without getting help. And maybe people don't even know how to help people who have a sleep problem. Absolutely. And, you know, typical physiatrists may not know a heck of a lot about it. One of the things that I think Matthew Walker is screaming to the world is we should pay attention to this. This is a huge problem for everyone. And he cites a bunch of studies. And Matthew Walker isn't the only person doing this work. It's just that he wrote a book about it and went on the tour circuit. And he's really quite articulate. He's British. That doesn't hurt. You know, it's the whole thing. So he's really good at talking about this stuff. But, you know, it, things like um, if you allow kids to go to school a little bit later, because if school starts at 7.30, well, they're up at, you know, six o'clock or 6.30, they got to catch a bus. And when you do that, their scores go down on the SATs and they get into more car accidents. And if you allow them to come in just an hour later, the scores go up. I mean, what school doesn't want? And it's like a crazy amount, like 40% increase in scores. Who doesn't want their kid not to have a car accident? I mean, they, they're just not getting sleep. So, you know, this crosses every domain of life. So somebody with a brain injury, you mentioned a stroke and they go in and they, they don't mention it to their doctor. Well, maybe their doctor should be, you know, you remember how like nutrition was a thing and doctors didn't know a damn thing about it, you know, and look how much doctors, how much progress they've made just with nutrition. I mean, they didn't even give nutrition courses to MDs. Now they do. And because food matters, sleep matters, these basic human functions matter. Well, they do matter. And there are things that have been with us from the beginning of time. So it's kind of interesting. The more I read the research as we prepare for these podcast episodes, the more I realize that. Um, so we're we do the science, we do the research to to learn, but to prove something. But sometimes I wonder: Are we just asking the wrong questions, or it's all stuff? It's, I don't know how to say what I want to say. It's like we're kind of surprised at how important sleep and nutrition are, except for they sleep and nutrition have been around forever and ever. And people were healthier before now when they weren't eating processed foods and everybody acts like it's a big surprise. I know I pick on this a lot, but evolution has all the answers. Because if you looked at us 50,000 years ago as hunter-gatherers, what were we doing? We were exercising we were eating well because we were eating off the land fresh food. Yeah, we weren't eating bread every day and putting our meals in the microwave to make them. Yeah, that's true. And then the other thing that you mentioned is sleep. So we have, you know, diet, exercise, and sleep as the sort of three parts of the stool that we're creating. Maybe there's more legs to the stool. I don't know. But I don't know how well our ancestors slept. But I'll tell you one thing, they didn't have like cell phones in front of them and honking horns out front and, you know, all this stuff that that we have to deal with. You know, I, I get the feeling the universe, this is really like creepy what I'm about to say. The universe is telling us to go backwards just a little. We can keep it the is. technologies, but you know, more 
trees and more. Okay, this is getting weird. Okay, just to go back then just a tiny bit about what you were saying about honking horns. I found some research that says that one of the most intriguing and disturbing hypotheses about the relationship of sleep disturbances and stroke is that it's in part responsible for the increased stroke risk among poor and minority populations. And then there are some different data sources that found that people who reside in inner cities are frequently kept awake at night by loud environmental sounds. So like industrial plants, sirens, and then all of the public and private transport vehicles. These result in reduced total sleep. They have insomnia, their sleep efficiency is decreased, and then they have more of that daytime sleepiness that you were talking about. So I find it interesting that there's a double whammy for for people who are in the lower socioeconomic areas as well. Yeah, absolutely. Although I've done some talks in Manhattan and in Brooklyn and uh, been in hotels that are very nice hotels and it's still loud in there. Even, even the rich people in Manhattan probably don't get great. Sleep. Maybe some of those um, those sky, I almost said sky risers. That's the way my, my, uh, <laughs> my wife says it. She's from Finland. Sky oh, risers. That's cute. I love um, it. What are they called? Sky risers. Skyscrapers. Skyscrapers. <laughs> I rise. High risers. Thank you. <laughs> lots of turns. I'm, I'm letting my Finglish get into this. Um, yeah. Maybe some of those really tall ones in Manhattan now get you far enough away from the traffic noise. But yeah. So so let's review what Deb said, folks. Um, sleep deprivation can drive stroke, can drive you to a stroke, can give you a stroke. And then when you have a stroke, it hurts your sleep. And so now you have a lot of honking horns and you've had a stroke to disturb your sleep. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that can happen is that uh, brain injury can change things like melatonin. We naturally have melatonin that we produce as we age. Uh, it's less and less. And usually around 55, 60, they say, it's probably not a bad idea to supplement uh, with melatonin a little bit, unless you're like Deb and you have no problem sleeping. Um, I do it occasionally. I wake up groggy after it, but um, but yeah, if you're going to do it, don't do it when you're 20. Sometimes my kids are like, can I have some melatonin? It's like, why? You produce tons of it. You don't need it. But the brain injury itself can change the chemical soup that's in the brain, and that can affect and uh, decrease uh, sleep during the night. Also, sometimes you have changes in breathing control, and that can lead to things like sleep apnea. And that means there's an oxygen drop, which then affects the brain and around and around we go. So I wonder if someone has a, a stroke or a brain injury and they're, they're just struggling with their sleep and maybe their overall health, if it would be worth seeing a healthcare professional who investigates hormone levels and is looking at all of those different factors, however they look at that, to kind of help get somebody more at the, I think a lot of it is hormonal level and neurotransmitter level on the right track. Yeah. Absolutely. Although I wonder if just a sleep clinic might be a good idea. Maybe. I wonder if they that's part of the um, comprehensive testing that they go through to see if they have too much of this hormone or not enough of that neurotransmitter or whatever. I would hope so. I would hope so too. And if they're not, they probably will now after listening to this podcast. <laughs>
Pete, we asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at neurons. At neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Another thing that can affect people with brain injury, but anybody, of course, all of these are transferable to anybody, whether you've had a brain injury or not, but prescription drugs, mm -hmm. you know, so you can go to your MD and you can use, what did we, what did we call it that time? It's like the brown paper bag test where you put all your meds in a brown paper bag, you bring them to your doc and you demand an explanation. Are we getting the dosages right? Is all this stuff correct? Because there might be stuff that, that gets in the way of you getting a decent night's sleep. Well, now that you brought up prescriptions and medications and supplements, if somebody is going to see a specialist for something like sleep, then it would be a wise idea to grab that paper bag and bring everything with you that you're taking or have a comprehensive list with you. Because the last thing you want to do is get another prescription and mix that with what you're already taking without knowing what the interactions might be. It's probably more likely for somebody who has brain injury, just leave the cognitive issues aside. You have multiple doctors and mm -hmm. sometimes they don't talk to each other super yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just, I want to nail this to the wall again. There's a difference between sleep and sedation. Sedation brings your brain down so that it has no waves. It's flat 
not, it's essentially flatlining. And that's not sleep. You're very active during sleep. And so it's important to uh, let that activity happen and not try to drug it out of existence. Yeah. You don't just fall asleep right away. It's not common to fall asleep right away. It takes most people 20 to 30 minutes to fall asleep. So I wonder sometimes if people think that that's having trouble falling asleep. But it it made me feel better knowing that sometimes it takes a few minutes to fall asleep. <laughs> a few minutes for you, Deb. <laughs> I mean, I can toss and turn for quite some time. And then, you know, uh, apparently if you do that too much, you should just get out of bed and, and do something else because you're not going to sleep and you know it and the whole world knows it. And then try again a little bit later. Yeah. I wonder too, um, I didn't find anything about screen time before bed, but I think that's a lot of people's go-to is, oh, I can't fall asleep. I'll just pick up my phone and scroll through Facebook or whatever social media platform they're on. Yeah. Um, screen time is so tough. It's so tough to turn it off. We got the Olympics. Half the stuff is coming on at 2 a.m. Did you see the women's volleyball, beach volleyball team no. last night? Late last night, you didn't? You didn't stay up with, sleeping. with your daughter and watch that? Because I did. <laughs> And they won. They won gold. That was awesome. That is yeah, awesome. I mean, that's a screen just telling you, hey, you know, you can lie on the couch forever, you know, and never go to sleep. <laughs> exactly. So um, can I uh, pivot over to the stages of sleep and talk just very briefly about that stuff? Hopefully you it's sure brief. Can. See how, how this goes. So stage one is the, the stage that you're talking about. You're part awake. You're part asleep. There's muscle jerks. It's because you had a dream and, and it's starting to go into some weird dream thing and your legs jerk and that wakes you up or you feel like you're falling and you, you're startled awake and you go through that a little bit. And I don't want to say anything bad about my wife and I might cut this out, but but she goes through a good 15 minutes of basically running in the bed. And uh, and so I just get up. I can't go to sleep when that happens. But uh, but yeah, so, so there's a lot of activity and it's not real sleep. Stage two is the big big one um, in terms of consolidating information. Look, if you're trying to recover from a brain injury, you have to consolidate what you learn during the day with your therapist at night because that's where neurons, you stress them out during the day and that triggers protein synthesis that then forms new dendrites that then forms new synaptic connections. But that all that stuff happens when you're sleeping. Motor learning happens when you're sleeping. So stage two is the big one where learning is consolidated. For the rest of us, maybe that haven't had a brain injury or, or that are not particularly focused on motor learning, although you might be, even if you haven't had a brain injury, because you're trying to learn how to play tennis. But for the rest of us, stage two is where, you know how I had this way of remembering the word hippocampus? So, you know, elephants have a big brain. You know, they say she has the memory of an elephant. Well, that's because elephants are big animals and they have big brains. Okay. But what about hippos? Hippos are big animals. They probably have big brains. And so they have long memories. And where would a hippo go to, to get those memories, to, to have camp? memories? To where? To camp. To campus. Oh, to campus. Or, or, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. You can go camp. <laughs> so it's the hippocampus. And the hippocampus, I think it's in Greek or in Latin. I forget which. It's the word for seahorse. And when they take the hippocampus out, they dissect it, they take it out, and they look at it. It looks exactly like a seahorse. By the way, 
Do you know that with seahorses, it's the male that holds the little baby seahorses? And then, did you know that? I did know that. You did know that. Wow. Have you ever seen them have have the males like shoot out the little baby seahorses? No. Oh, I got to put this so on, cool? the, on the show notes. They he just He just goes... <laughs> It's thousands of these little baby seahorses come out. So anyway, there's two hippocampi. This is what I'm trying to say. And they're on either side of the brainstem. Hippocampus is where short-term memories are stored, but it's short-term. And when you sleep and you're in the second stage of sleep, that's where it starts to get shunted and sent to different parts of the brain. It goes to the frontal lobe, the temporal lobe, and the anterior cingulate cortex, which is also in this midbrain area. And one of the things that happens during stage two, remember we're in stage two now, this is the important stage. I think it's the most important because it's has to do with memories and consolidating memories and learning. It has to do with learning. So about 50% of the the night is spent in stage two, although you cycle through these stages over and over again. Yeah. And that is one nice thing that uh, Dr. Walker explains in detail in the podcast, if anybody's interested in hearing him talk about that, because it's, it's very fascinating. Wait, Deb, are you sending to people to other podcasts besides ours? I am because just think what happens. Just think what happens when he starts sending people to ours. How is he going to know? No, oh, people will probably email him and say, "Hey, I heard about you on the Noggins and Neurons podcast." Well, if that's what we're going to do, then let's go after. I don't know who's the most famous person with a podcast. I think my, uh, my Tim Ferriss, maybe Tim Ferriss. Uh, is it Zach Shepard? I think that's one that my daughter listens to. I don't know anything about it. Um, yeah. So, um, so get, tell them that you listen to Loggins and Loggins and Neurons, <laughs> Noggins and Loron, Noggins and Shoosh. I need to get some sleep tonight. So that's stage two. What do you think of that one? You want to take care of that one, right? I think we want to be in that stage as many times as is optimal in a night. Yeah, absolutely. Stage three, the delta waves that come during stage three are not as deep as these sleep spindles. So that's just another stage. Stage four is the deepest sleep. And that's where if you try to wake somebody up, they're really not going to be able to wake up. It usually takes you about a half an hour to even get your senses after that. You can have a hundred decibels go off right next to your bed and you won't wake up. So that's that's uh, stage four. And then stage five is the one that we all think is the really important one. That's the rapid eye movement when you're dreaming and you're having nightmares about yeah, you're in class and you don't recognize anybody and there's a test and you forgot you there was a test and you can't find your locker and where's you know, football practice and I don't have my pads and that whole thing. That's not sometimes I have this this dream that I'm skiing, but I can't find my ski boots and I can't find my skis. And then, you know, I love to ski. So it's it's like this whole thing. I guess it's it's a nightmare about things that are really good or maybe really bad. But it, anyway, Deb, I want to bore you with a hypothesis I have. A little okay. bit of a tangent. We haven't been down a rabbit hole for a while. We haven't. So I think I figured out I'm gonna be like a, a uh, amateur neuroscientist. Okay. So I think I figured out what the brain is doing. So you fall asleep, right? Immediately, stage two, you fall asleep and you've had all these memories, all these things that you've learned during the day. So it immediately takes it out of the hippocampus and stores it in long-term memory banks in different parts of the brain. Okay. It has to get that out because otherwise you're wasting time. That stuff is in your brain in terms of the amount of time. It's close to when it happened. You get it out, you get it into the right part. Okay. 
That was stage two. And then you go through the other stages and they have benefits for a variety of reasons, allow you to rest, et cetera, et cetera. But then stage five is REM. And REM is you getting ready for the next day. It's going through in a sort of phantasmagorical way, all the possibilities that could happen to you the next day. That anxiety about not being able to find your locker is really something at work where you're having troubles with somebody that you can't figure out. They're the locker that you can't open, that kind of thing. So this is my idea is that it gets the memories into these long-term storage bases immediately. And then in order for you to get out of sleep and be prepared for the day, it allows you to work on these problems that you know you're going to have to tackle the next day. So that is probably not true, folks. You can just fast forward through that, but it's too late because you're already here. (laughs) But that's I like that because it, it kind of makes sense that the brain immediately would store that stuff in long-term areas. And then it would give you a little precursor to the day that's coming and the challenges that you have right before you wake up. Mm. So what about people who have that recurring nightmare? I don't know. Do you have, what's your recurring nightmare, Deb? What do you got? I used to have one. I don't have it anymore. I used to have one where I, somebody was chasing me and I either couldn't get up the stairs or remember when we used to have rotary phones? <laughs> those phones that you had to turn a dial on, I would always get right to the very last number and then misdial the last one and have to start all over again. (laughs) And the little finger guillotine that's at the end, it's like shaped like a guillotine. I hated that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, I don't have that dream anymore because it was rough. Yeah. You're going to have to redial a phone number. That's real tough. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. Yeah. So I'm thinking about mine and like, yeah, I, so I had, I have the ones where um, I'm going to football practice and there's no, I can't find my pads and I don't recognize anybody. And I forgot all the plays. I get the one where, you know, oh. I'm going to school and especially because I teach now and then I go, I have to go to a school. I like a lot of these fears come up <laughs> and can't find the locker and I don't recognize anything. It's a huge building. That's some other ones though. Have This is a little weird, but have you ever fallen this, had a, had a dream about being deeply in love? Not about with anybody, just somebody in your dreams. Well, I have. <laughs> I hate, I, yeah, but it was somebody that who was married. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, what? Well, that's, that's completely human. You're allowed I to get, do that. You know, you don't have I to can. act out on it. Well, I, yeah, but or maybe your dreams were trying to tell you something. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, with me, it's not so much a person, it's just this person in the dream. But I have those less and less. I have less and less of the good ones. Here's another one <laughs> saving, saving a girl from a burning building. I used to have that as a lot Ooh. as a kid. Yeah, like I'm the hero. And I'm also. Nice. The hero's journey. Yes, the hero's journey. But I've also had ones where I am beating the holy crap out of somebody. Hmm. Like there's a struggle, there's a struggle. And then I just, like, what's that? Like, what's that? Hmm. You know, I don't want to (laughs) fight. You can get hurt fighting. So I don't want to do that. But this is in my dreams. I don't know. Maybe it's a struggle against myself or something. I don't know. I don't know about that stuff. I had a dream. I probably shouldn't even say this here. But when I was working at the hospital, I had a dream that the MRU... And all the hallways in that MRU had these walls that went all the way up to the ceiling and I couldn't get out. And I, I, I think I, I just, I felt like a rat in a maze in that dream. And then I, I questioned it for a long time. I thought, is this dream telling me that I'm trapped here? That, you know, am I, am I being held back? It's probably one of the only dreams I had where I actually felt like it meant something. Hey, 
Uh, this is going to show my ignorance. What's an MRU? Oh, it's a medical rehab unit. It's the inpatient rehab unit. It's an ERF. An ERF? What's an ERF? An inpatient rehab facility. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard those terms and I've worked in rehab hospitals, but there you go. Learn something new every day. It's gone now. It doesn't even exist anymore. Well, you're not getting that dream anymore either, are you? Nope. Okay. Is that it about the sleep stages? Is there more? That's all I have on the sleep stages. We got to stage five, that's REM, and then you wake up. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Now, what I did was I emailed you, Deb, the uh, suggestions, and I thought maybe we could go over those. You do one, I do one. And then um, from there, we can discuss whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. Maybe maybe they'll suck. I don't know. Probably not. So, So I garnered every darn suggestion for getting decent sleep. And I put them on one page and I'll make that page available on the show notes. But one of the things that you can do when you talk to your patients, say, hey, Mr. Smith, uh, what you're trying to do here is cognitive. It's very difficult. You're trying to motor learn. You're trying to allow for neurons that typically don't do the movement to do that movement. This is hard motor learning. It's not going to be easy, but you're not going to go anywhere and you're not going to be able to consolidate this stuff that you work so hard on in the gym unless you sleep. And then you whip out this page and you give them four or five or 10 suggestions for getting decent sleep. And that's why I think it's important that you go to the show notes and find it. Are you talking about people who are coming to outpatient therapy? Sure. Why not? What about somebody in skilled nursing on the skilled side or or somebody who's chronic, who's not on the skilled side or somebody in home care? Couldn't it be anybody? It could, but I'm I'm thinking about the people who are more more acute or subacute, maybe in that inpatient rehab facility, uh, who are woken by staff at night. Oh, we have to get your blood pressure. Oh, we have we to check take to your see, temperature. We have to check to see if you're asleep. Yeah. Wake up. Here's your sleeping meds. So I think that our hey, system- I, I got a quick blood draw that I need to do. It'll help yeah. you sleep because you have no blood left. <laughs> Um, I've even heard of like enemas. Wake up. It's time what? for an enema. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. But I oh, guess forget that's sleeping a, then. Typically, that's not a rehab hospital, but I get your point. There's going to be a lot of people mm-hmm. in and out of the room. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, these tricks won't work because you're not in control of your environment. And there's a lot of this stuff is environmental stuff. It is. Uh, yeah. So I like this one, get off the couch and limit TV watching. Oh, so you're skipping to like the third one. I, it just <laughs> caught my eye. I didn't do oh, it on okay. purpose. <laughs> All right, let's go with that one. Get off the couch and limit TV watching. So that's two things in one, like the get off the couch, you're physically a little bit more active, but also the TV will allow you to have light hitting your eye, fooling your brain into believing it's daytime when it's not. When my even when my kids were pretty young, the the glow of the little iPhone on their face was the last thing I saw at night until I yelled at them to put that damn thing down. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure they listened. Yeah, <laughs> your kids are like mine. <laughs> yeah, they listen. listen all the time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so set an alarm to try to wake up at the same time every day. Probably a good idea. Go to sleep mm-hmm. the same time. Wake up the same time. Don't screw it up during the weekends. I know we're fuddy duddies. Well, I just don't see how this is realistic. Yeah, I mean it's. Not, it's not realistic, but if you want to get into good sleep hygiene, that's probably a pretty good one. Okay. I'm probably I'm a terrible occupational therapist. I doubt that. <laughs> what do you think of the second one? Include meaningful activities in your daily routine. 
What do you think that has to do with sleep? Oh, I love that one. Um, I think this is my thought. If you're doing things that are meaningful to you in your life, you're more satisfied with life. You're not going to worry. You're not going to think about life passing you by. Even if something happens like a stroke or a brain injury, if you start getting involved in things that feed your soul, you're going to just feel more fulfilled in life. And then be ready to fall asleep and get ready for the next day when you're going to do more of that. That sounds about right. Yeah. That, and it, what do you think? It, maybe I would add, if they're not meaningful activities, it doesn't take as much brain power and you're not burning as much calories. You're not stressing the brain out. And you know, the brain needs the sleep and yeah. But that kind of leads me to the next one, which is exercise every day. People with traumatic brain injury who exercise regularly report fewer sleep problems. So, But for all of us, exercising, yeah, super important. It's one of the three legs of the stool that keeps us up, right? What do we say? Diet, exercise, sleep. D-E-S-S-E-D said. Yeah, I don't know. We got no mnemonics, but we got the three, <laughs> we got the stool. Try um, to get, do you want to do the next one? No, go ahead. Try to get uh, outdoors for some sunlight during the daytime. If you live in an area with less sun in the wintertime, I'm talking to you, Finland, been there, done that. I never, I never woke up and I never really went to sleep. Uh, consider trying light box therapy or a bulb that imitates natural sunlight. Don't nap more than 20 minutes during the day. Yeah. Hmm. So this is a big one because I love naps and I do nap longer than that, but I also, you know, I've disturbed my sleep cycles. The 20 minutes is the NASA nap concept that NASA astronauts did better when they got short naps, but it, you go to a certain point and you wake up groggy and then you kind of don't do anything and then you eat and then you go to bed because you're tired and then you wake up at 2 a.m. and you're sunk. Yeah. So all of these, um, doing something meaningful, exercising every day, getting outdoors, when you lay on the couch, it makes you more tired, but you can't sleep when you do it too much. So there's something to actually moving and being engaged in life, which can be hard to do if somebody is experiencing depression mm, or a brain injury, or, or brain injury. If they're stuck in the house because of COVID mm -hmm. and they're not having that much social stuff. Yeah. And, or if getting outside is difficult mobility wise. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you can't walk, it's embarrassing. You got to be out there with a walker and you, that's no good. Uh, let's see the next one. Follow a bedtime routine. For example, put out your clothes for the morning, brush your teeth, and then read or listen to relaxing music for 10 minutes before turning the lights out. I like that, that you have something that tells you, okay, uh, now is a time to go to sleep. It's the going to sleep routine mm -hmm. sets you up. Um, one of the things that's important, and if you have kids, this is really important, start to turn down the lights around the house around bedtime or an hour before bedtime. You know, evolutionarily, we were made to wake up when the sun came up and go to sleep when the sun went down. Mm -hmm. But the sun never goes down because of the iPhone. I'm blaming you, Steve Jobs. It's your fault. Or maybe you, yeah. Nokia, Nokia over there in Finland. <laughs> so um, yeah, so you, bringing the lights down literally puts you to sleep. Um, one of the things I do on my phone is I turn down the level to zero. I have this app that turns it down to zero and it's, and you read something like something that's normal taxing. Like I, I, you know, I am, I am tired. I am so tired 
Mm-hmm. I cannot think straight and then I fall asleep. So if you're going to use a phone, bring down that, but bringing down the lights artificially, do that. Mm-hmm. I like what you're saying. Did you know that sleep, rest and sleep are considered occupations? Well, in my case, they are. Well, they are mine too. I think it, for most of us. If we could figure out how to make money, then we'd be in business. So the occupational therapy practice framework is a document that we use in occupational therapy to, to guide the process of what we do in OT. And it also explains what occupations are and what they mean. And sleep preparation is a thing in the OTPF. And it talks about routines, bedtime routines to prepare yourself, to prepare the body, to prepare the mind, that it's time to wind it down and get ready to fall asleep. Is it specific on what that routine should be? Any suggestions? Well, there are examples in here, but they do talk about how routines that prepare the self for a comfortable rest are important. And then they have some examples. So what you mentioned with grooming, getting your clothes out for the next day, reading and listening to music, saying goodnight to others and engaging in meditation or prayers before bed, determining the time of day and length of time that somebody desires to sleep, and then how much time somebody needs to be awake. So being mindful of that and planning for that and establishing healthy sleep patterns. So I think that you know what you're talking about, like habits and routines, when you start with these habits, you can build them into a routine and then your body just kind of gets used to looking for that. Yeah. The, the routine itself triggers these mm-hmm. thoughts of sleepiness. Yeah. Yep. What about clinicians? Do you think there's any role for them to do or not do something? Um, You know, OTs are famous for getting in there early, early, early to get them up and dressed and have them work on dressing. Um, But I also know some OTs will see somebody sleeping and walk and try to find somebody who is awake or or work on feeding or something else with some, because some people are early risers and some people, their sleep sleep cycles are different. Yeah. I I personally don't like to wake people up when they're sleeping. I'd rather find that person who's awake and work with them. I don't like to be. It's hard for me to be disruptive to, to a person. Yeah. Yeah. That's not good. Walking in and they're asleep and you got to mm-hmm. try. Yeah. It just doesn't feel good. Um, no. The other thing I would say is light, dim the lights, get them down, turn them off, make the kids know that it's time to sleep. Let yourself know it's time to sleep, but also cool the room, cool the house because our core body temperature has to drop quite a bit for us to even fall asleep. And, you know, evolutionarily heat means daytime, heat and light means daytime, cool and dark means nighttime, sleepy time, brain go off time. So those two things I think are really important. And around here, we've been really good about turning the temperature down a few degrees. At night, of course, it's if it's a nice night, you don't even have to worry about it. You open the windows, but uh, but yeah, cool the room, turn down the lights. Yeah, I just uh, counted the total number of talks that I've done about stroke recovery or about you know neuroplastic model of this or that, and it took me a while to figure out that I could just put it in Excel and then look at the bottom mm-hmm. number because I have I have them all listed. But I anyway, so it's. 800. Oh my and gosh. Wow. It's just, just above 800. And 
And I spent all that time in, in hotels. And one of the things I used to love in hotels was you always have that air conditioner that's usually really good. And you just turn that thing on down to like, I don't know, I, I would turn it to like 65 and crawl under the comforter and just whew, out. So yeah. I hate that. I always freeze when I stay in a hotel or my daughter's house. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I love it. <laughs> it just, it's just like cold is good and it's so much easier to sleep during the winter. Well, wow. I do like it cooler when I sleep, but if I have enough blankets. So a lot of hotels, they just give you that one little tiny thin blanket. That's just not enough. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. Well, I've got it all worked out now. I just bring my own. Oh, really? If I'm not flying, if I'm flying, I don't bring my own. I just mm. get another one. Hotel management's happy to accommodate. Yep. Yeah. Usually mm-hmm. they are. And usually if you're lucky, they don't show up like two hours later because you're at Disney World. <laughs> I know, right? So Um, I'm looking at this one that says, avoid thoughts or discussions about topics that cause anxiety, anger, and frustration before bedtime. And I think that's where a lot of people run into trouble because they feel anxious about things. And it's hard sometimes when you've trained your brain to keep thinking those thoughts to turn it off. Now, imagine if it's not a discussion with somebody in your house, but you're on Facebook arguing with somebody about whether they should be vaccinated or not, or you know something political or just some nonsense. That probably could wake you up. So mm-hmm. even if there's not somebody there that's annoying you, uh, it could be somebody who's far, far away annoying you. Don't do that. Well, exactly. You know, that's that's a good point, the whole Facebook conversation thing. I I don't know when this happened, but I remember that I did realize at some point that it's not my job to engage in every conversation on Facebook. And I just stopped doing it. And then I didn't even care about Facebook anymore. So I think it's easy to get caught up in that without even being aware that you're caught up in it. But I'll tell you one Facebook group that will really help you sleep. Kids, it's the Noggins and Neurons Facebook group. And we are there to discuss things about brain injury. It's for survivors. It's for students. It's for clinicians. It's for caregivers. It's for people that are just interested in the brain. We're going to be talking about that stuff. So, and there's you, no there's no arguing in that group either. There's absolutely no arguing because we're all there for people with brain injury. And yeah. what are you going to argue about? We need to help them more. Yes, we do. Wait, I would like to chime in and say we should help them more. Yes, we should. We should do the right thing. Be yeah. So it's going to be a big kumbaya agreement. Uh, so it will not affect your sleep. Um, and is there a, will we have a um, QR code that they can scan with their phone if mm-hmm. they want to get on? Yeah. As soon as the person who's responsible for typing those things in and adding those things gets that in there. Well, whoever that is, maybe they could go back r- retrospectively and they- do some of the, okay. Okay. They will. They they better. They get will. On We've it. already talked to them about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to use some of our Venmo money to hire somebody <laughs> know, to right? pitch at. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So join our our noggins and neurons, and don't join those political ones because they'll just drive you nuts. Okay, yeah. Deb. Now we are. Um, Coming up on a uh, what do they call it in the radio? A hard a hard break. So um, let's go through. Let's see how fast we can do these. Okay. Okay. Where are we? We are avoid caffeine 
nicotine, alcohol, and sugar for five hours before bedtime. And Doro and Lynette were talking about don't eat for five hours before your bedtime, which I think that was sick and I'm not doing that. But yeah, all those things are going to affect your sleep. You know what? I started doing it just from that podcast interview with them. And I feel so much better. I sleep. I mean, well, obviously I sleep good, but I feel better not eating right before I go to bed. Wow. Thank you, Doro and Lynette. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's getting better every day. You want to take one? Well, it says, do not exercise within two hours of bedtime, but stretching or meditation may help with sleep. And I would like to say, if people tend to sit more often, that stretching would probably feel good to the body and help it relax. You know, sometimes you get jittery when you sit more. I do. Yep, absolutely. Do not eat, read, or watch TV in bed. Yeah. What are the two things you're supposed to do in bed, Deb? Sex and sleep. Those are the two things. Anything outside of that, not allowed to do. I thought it was sex and sex. I'm sorry. I got mixed (laughs) up. (laughs) Ah, yes. Well, that's that's mm-hmm. <laughs> moving right along. Uh, create, well, a, uh, yes. Oh, I was going <laughs> to say keep st- that'll help keep stress out of the bedroom. I thought you were going to say that'll help you stretch out. <laughs> well, <laughs> You're multitasking. <laughs> that's all there is. Okay. Uh-huh. Create a restful atmosphere in the bedroom, protected from distractions like sex, Deb. Sorry. That's and, not a distraction. Uh, that's right. Noise, <laughs> extreme temperatures, and light. Oh, in, my God. You're remember doing... the old joke like you're supposed to say in bed after everything? So that, that would work. Um, <laughs> be protected from distractions, noise, extreme temperatures, and light in bed. In bed. If you don't fall asleep in 30 minutes in bed, get out of bed and do something (laughs) relaxing, not in bed or boring until you feel sleepy. Going to bed and getting up at the same time every day. Removing electronic devices such as televisions, computers, or cell phones from the bedroom. Avoiding large meals, caffeine, and alcohol. That was redundant. Can I do the Mm. next one? Sure. Making sure the sleep environment is quiet, dark, and not too hot or not too cold. Look, if you're going to air, go towards cold, except if you're Deb in a a, a hotel room. (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes changing behaviors helps improve sleep. So regular rise time and bedtime. By doing this every day, you can help your internal clock by providing regular cues, which is going to then improve your sleep-wake cycle. And then this will ultimately help in getting to sleep faster and reduce the number of nighttime awakenings, which we didn't really talk about. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get plenty of bright, natural sunlight. So we talked about some of these before. So they're going to be a little bit redundant, but it's not redundancy, it's repetition. And repetition is good for the brain. Preferably, they say early morning sunlight along with exercise. So, you know, go out, get the, get the newspaper or walk around a little bit. This will give your internal clock a strong cue to run on time to get that rhythm going. Yeah. So one of the things that Dr. Matthew Walker spoke about in the podcast was um, exercising facing the east and the light has to come in through your eyes. So you really need to be facing a window or being outside when that sun is coming up so it can come right in your eyes. Oh, well, we're going to say again, avoid stimulants such as caffeine and nicotine. Avoid caffeine containing drugs, drinks, and foods for eight hours before bedtime. Good luck with that. And avoid tobacco in the evening. Eight hours. So if you went to bed at 10. You can, that's two o'clock. You're right. It's two o'clock. It's two. I mean, sometimes 
sometimes if you love coffee, you just want that afternoon cup of coffee. My wife is a big coffee drinker. Most Finns are people are from they? Finland. Yeah, big, big coffee drinkers. And she can drink a cup of coffee and go right to sleep. I she sleeps really too. well. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I think, I just think that's right. Mm. If you nap, try to do so at the same time every day for no more than one hour. This says one hour before it was 20 minutes. That's even better for you. Yeah, that's better for me, but I I would stick with the 20 minutes. That's what I think the research says. You know what I would do? If I found that when I took a nap, I couldn't sleep at night, it would make sense to eliminate the nap because being able to fall asleep at night and stay asleep is more important to me. And I think to a lot of people because you feel better in the morning when you wake up, when you sleep all night. So maybe eliminate that nap. Yeah. Um, So the other thing it talks about is like, once you're asleep, there could be things that could wake you up, light um, and noises. And I use a a white noise machine and it's up to to 11. Yeah. I I turn it up loud and because, you know, I'll hear people and I'm pretty light sleeper. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, according to the research, I probably go into these very deep areas where you can't wake me up, but a lot of times I'm light sleeper. So I I keep it on pretty loud. So this is an interesting one, avoiding heavy exercise within six hours of bedtime. The other one said exercise two hours before. So you're going to have to find what works for you. I'm sure Mm -hmm. this is not one size fits all. Yeah, it's not. And in, and in fact, that's why I did. I'm going to promote that other podcast again. Um, what, Doctor Huberman? What? What? Um, they, Math, Doctor Walker, Matt, my friend Matt Walker. <laughs> He did talk about something that I think is important. And I think it's important for us as therapists to remember when we're working with people. We don't, he he talks about a time when he was very puritanical about this. And I think it's I think it's easy for newer therapists to be more prescriptive with their suggestions and believing that th- their suggestions are the correct answer. And I think what we learn over time as we get older and have some more life experience and more of these real interactions with the client that we work with is that everybody has to find what works for them and give yourself the opportunity to try different things. Yeah. Who knows what works for you? Mm-hmm. Oh, satin sheets. Satin sheets. I saw that. Yeah. They're Ooh. suggesting satin sheets. That would be good. Well, I don't know, Pete. I think some people might slide right out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> satin sheets on there. Satin sheets. In bed. in bed. Go to the bathroom immediately before retiring. This is especially true if you are a middle-aged man. I can attest to that. And how about maybe decreasing the amount of water that you're drinking right before you go to bed? That's probably a good idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it takes about a half an hour for it to cycle out. So yeah, yeah. Um, try to give it at least a half an hour and then go to the bathroom right before you go to sleep. Um, a lot of these are redundant. I'm not going to go over all these do you see any that that are poking out at you that are super mm, important? I do. I well, again, start your morning with a healthy habit, like a walk around the block or a moment of gratitude. I think that healthy habits are are where we should try to go, and don't try to make all new habits all at once because it won't work. Your brain will sabotage you anyways. Pick one thing that you think you could stick with and pair it with something that you're already doing that is beneficial. If you've tried everything and still can't sleep well, you may have a sleep disorder. Talk to your doctor or go to a sleep clinic or get your doctor to send you to a sleep clinic. That's probably a pretty good idea. Yeah. And don't be afraid to educate your doctor on on this topic if your doctor is not aware. And if you have a doctor that you can't speak with these things about, then perhaps consider finding a new physician. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And then the last one uh, that I wanted to point out, it's under helpful hints here. Catching up on sleep is a myth. You can't mm-hmm. do it. If you lose sleep, like when I used to travel a lot, you know, I, I wouldn't sleep for a whole night because it was a time zone change and late flights or whatever the heck it was going on. And it, you just can't catch up. It, you'll never catch up. So once that sleep is lost, it's lost. Make sure you sleep well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else, Deb? Uh, no, just on that same note, it's once you realize that you can't catch up on sleep, it just makes more sense to move beyond it and not worry about it. Because I do know people who worry about lost sleep. Yeah. Isn't that an irony when you're Mm -hmm. so anxious about your lost sleep that you lose sleep in bed? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Pete. All right, guys. Thanks. Uh, Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.